Hello and welcome everyone to the Feels Like 45 podcast. I'm Dustin Ragusa. As you can tell, I'm not Cade Webb. Cade had a late schedule change. Everything's okay, but he's not going to be able to make it. Luckily, though, our good buddy Adam Lunt has decided to hop on and recap the bowl game, talk a little transfer portal. Adam, how's it going, dude? I'm doing well. Yeah, no, thanks for having me on. I was excited to talk some some football because the season's <laughs> over and we're not going to be able to talk about it much for the next, or maybe we will talk about it a lot for the next eight months. But nonetheless, <laughs> uh, excited to be on and uh, thanks for the invite. So Yeah, and I appreciate you coming on last minute. We're planning to do a podcast with Adam. We talked about it on a previous episode where we'll recap the signing class, recap the transfer portal guys, and kind of preview spring football. But we'll probably hold that out until everything's all settled give us some times to watch these guys in a little bit more detail. So it was awesome to have Adam on before that, because you guys know Adam knows a lot about the game. And speaking of the game, we've got a Texas A&M Tax Act Texas Bowl to recap. But before we do that, let's hear a quick word from one of our sponsors. The Feels Like 45 podcast is brought to you by our friends at Charlie Hustle Clothing Co. Charlie Hustle is a vintage-inspired clothing company based out of Kansas City that specializes in collegiate and hometown apparel. Charlie Hustle wants you to be the best-dressed fan this season, so be sure to check out their wide selection of officially licensed collegiate apparel today and show off your school spirit all season long. With over 30 schools to choose from, they've got you covered with all of your collegiate apparel needs. Shop today at www.charliehustle.com. Charlie Hustle, vintage, made, fresh. All right, Adam. Let's get into the game. We know Oklahoma State came away with the victory. Heading into the game, Texas A&M, I saw one of their beat writers report, he only counted 48 scholarship players. It was a little odd, though, because some of the guys Caden and I thought weren't going to play that were in the transfer portal, such as offensive lineman Chase Besides, ended up playing. But you could tell it was makeshift because... He had been playing right tackle all season. They have him in at right guard in this game. Noah Thomas, one of their prominent receivers who we thought was going to play, is out. And then they lose their starting quarterback of the final three games of the season, Jalen Henderson, on the first play of the game and what looked to be some kind of weird arm, wrist, broken bone injury. He never returned, and they played true freshman Marcel Reed, who hadn't really played at all. So it was a little crazy. Oklahoma State comes away with the 31-23 victory. Their 24-6 halftime lead was their largest halftime lead of the entire season. It looked like it was going to end up being a blowout, and then Texas A&M comes back a little bit in the second half. Adam, what was kind of your general thoughts on the game when you heard 48 scholarship players from Texas A&M? I know you had some thoughts on Twitter about that and kind of the star rankings and things of that nature. Yeah, I, I kind of felt like it was going to flow more, cl- cl- more like more associated with the second half. I mean, 
at the end of the day, there's still a lot of talent on that roster. And I know that, you know, these are probably a lot of inexperienced players, a lot of players playing, playing out of position. But when you actually watch the game closely on, you know, some of the individual matchups, there's still a lot of talent uh, on on that field for, for Texas A&M. And obviously, you know, bringing your fourth string quarterback in to play is not ideal, you know. So, um, so the, you know, the, the upside as a team for this particular game for A&M was obviously lowered tremendously based on, based on that. But, you know, I think from an Oklahoma state perspective, you come into this game thinking like, Hey, these guys can still play. Um, You know, the amount of talent is staggering when you go and actually dive into who is playing. Um, And the whole 48 thing, like, I feel like there's context that needs to be had there. Like, what does that actually mean? Because how many players do you actually play in a game? Yeah. It's probably closer to somewhere between, you know, excluding, let's say, special teams. Let's just say on offense and defense. You're really talking about somewhere probably between 30 and 35 players. So um, so what does that actually mean? Now, you know, if you go back and look at their two deep in game seven or eight and compare it, maybe there's a staggering difference. I don't know. But um, – I think at the end of the day, you could you could kind of tell to a certain degree that they were shorthanded, but I would say that there was still a lot of talent and still a lot of play. I mean, that one-handed catch by Moose Muhammad, he's flowing towards the sideline, reaches back. You know, they had some players out there, so I I wouldn't I wouldn't say that this is like a watered down win by any means. Um, it's certainly a win that would have been different had they been at full strength, though. Yeah, and you know, you make a good point. I mentioned beside his playing, they basically had, so everybody on their offensive line had played 333 snaps or more. And they had Bryce Foster and Trey Zoon out there who'd played 750 plus. <laughs> and then, like I mentioned beside us, who would enter the portal and came back. So they basically had their entire offensive line, Max Wright, one of their starting tight ends. You mentioned Moose Muhammad on the defensive end. You see the talent in guys like Shamar Stewart, Shamar Turner, Albert Regis, DJ Hicks. These are really talented players. Torian York at linebacker. It's not like they didn't have talent out there, to your point. It maybe just wasn't the same depth chart they had earlier in the season. And then when Marcel Reed comes in at quarterback, this is a really highly touted high school recruit coming in there who not only is he a very dynamic runner, and I think a much more dynamic runner than Jalen Henderson. He's also right-handed, and Henderson's left-handed, and they were practicing for a left-handed quarterback for the entire bowl, 15, 11 bowl practices, whatever they did. So some great points from your end, Adam. I think that's enough of kind of a little preview. I think we can kind of get into the offensive game review. So 570 yards of total offense, 31 points, only seven in the second half. But the offense was really flowing early in the game. They scored field goal on their first drive, then TD, TD, punt, TD to end the half. Alan Bowman looked really comfortable. The offensive line was blocking well. Ollie Gordon was doing his thing. Obviously, Owens and Presley and Leon Johnson were playing really well. You know, coming into the game, Mike Gundy said it, they treated it like spring practice with about 25% of the practice preparing for A&M because they didn't really know what to expect on either side of the ball with A&M being without their offensive coordinator, without their head coach, weren't sure if DJ Durkin was going to defensive coordinate the game, which he did end up doing. And Oklahoma state goes out there on offense and breaks 
the following tax act bowl records passing yards with 436 receiving yards by a player Rashad Owens with 164 receptions by a player Brennan Presley with 16 it was also Oklahoma State's offensive performance was also among the best of the season against this Texas A&M defense the 570 total yards were the most allowed by the Aggies all season and the 436 passing yards were the most allowed all season. Along with that, 34 completions by Alan Bowman were the most by an individual against the Aggies this season, along with Brandon Presley's 16 receptions being the most against the Aggies. And Oklahoma State, third in total yards, third in total first downs in Oklahoma State bowl history. Just a lot of crazy stats on offense from this game. Adam, I'm going to throw it over to you. What were kind of your takeaways on game plan scheme and how they attack this Texas A&M defense. Yeah, I don't, I don't think they had a choice. I mean, you know, it was pretty clear from the start what Texas A&M's strategy was, which was, you know, they were basically going to take that, that extra player and put him in the box in various capacity. Uh, pretty much every single down, I even saw some third longs where they were, they were applying additional numbers to the box. So, <laughs> Um, so that's why, you know, I think it was somewhere around the mid first quarter. I was like, and I think I even put a tweet out. I'm like, you know, Brendan Presley may hit 20 catches today. Uh, and I think he had like three catches at that point because you could see, I mean, like if you're going to put generally speaking, when you got one high safety and you've got anywhere from three to four wide receivers, you know, they're playing press on the outside and they're playing off coverage on the inside and, you know, when you're talking about that and you got blockers such as Owens and Leon Johnson on the outside, you're going to feed Presley in a variety of different ways. So they basically, their hand was forced. They, and, and you saw that, I think you referenced somewhere, uh, maybe it was on your, the Twitter account, how many times they, they, uh, threw the ball vertically. And it was basically the game plan was get some yards on the ground where you could against, uh, against numbers and then feed Presley on the outside and throw the ball deep to Leon Johnson and Rashad Owens, not overly complex, um, you know, not, not breaking any, uh, any new world records for anything super groundbreaking. It's just taking what the defense gives you. And the good news for OSU was, is that Owens and Leon Johnson went up and made a lot of plays up in the air in contested catch situations, um, which obviously led to a lot of those, you know, 440 passing yards or, or whatever you, you had referenced. Um, I do think that there were a few wrinkles in there, uh, like that, that cool, um, fourth down play to, to Brendan Presley and, uh, the gunner Gundy, yeah. uh, uh, what would play. you call that route that Presley ran? Uh, you know, I, I, I think, um, what do they call that? Uh, uh, is that a jerk route or a whip route? But it wasn't a full jerk route. I don't know which one's inside. It, and which it one's was outside. like a it was like a head fake jerk route yeah. almost. It was almost like one step in and then like the head and the hips and then came back. <laughs> uh, but I think that that route concept is so cool because you know it's very common in that situation. Same situation was what fourth and two I think. Yeah, and everyone's loading up because you think you're going to give it to Ollie Gordon. And it's like okay, you got two receivers. And it's like it's like the goal line play. You know, there's going to be some type of pick, right? So as a as a defense, you're you're in man coverage. So you're either going to you're either going to swap the receivers or you're going to stay on them. But it's man, right? And either way, if you swap or you stay on them, that route works against that that coverage. Um, because how often 
it's super common for two players to run routes off of each other, but the assumption is is that you're going in different directions. That one, you're going the same direction. You're you're, <laughs> you're faking outward, but then you're both basically running like a double slant. So you're kind of running like the shield pick. So it was really cool. Uh, and and they probably should run that in the reds or you know on the goal line moving forward all the time. So yeah, that that was I was literally like that looks like a great red zone goal line play. And having the big bodies of Owens and Leon Johnson as kind of your pick guys on the outside is just such Blessing. a positive, such yeah. a plus for this Oklahoma State offense. You were talking a little bit about too about that Gunner Gundy play. I think you called it you called it QBGT counter running back follow. I called it QBGT <laughs> counter running back lead. And then I saw one of the X and O's guys I follow on Twitter. I think he's a guy you follow too. Called it QB Super GT Counter, which I think I like that one the best. Yeah, I think they they do that when the um was it? I think they've done something similar with the tight end, where where maybe the the tight end on the so in this particular context the play is going to the right, right? So the left guard and the left tackle are pulling, um, and I think I've seen to where the right tight end does like a counter and then fills. So yeah. and then I've seen it be called the super counter. In this context, it was the the tight end stayed play side and the running back countered. Um, <laughs> either way, it worked out perfectly because very rarely do you see a GT counter like actually work as it's designed. You know, a lot of times there's just so much traffic and you just kind of get what you can. And it's two um, and big that, guys trying to move yeah. over there. Like it's not it's not your GH counter with one of those guys being a nimble tight end. It's two big bodies. Yeah, I uh, agreed. So uh it was a really really cool play call and I think you know that's another one that you can store for later because I actually went back and watched it in like slow motion like a hundred times and you can see I mean it's a loaded box. I'm actually surprised Gundy mentioned in his press conference I think that they had a pass option, you know, depending on the coverage and it was like a zero situation, zero covered situation where you had three receivers out left and basically man on all three of them. Um, but they had a uh, they had a loaded side to the the stronger side, so that that little fake by Gunner Gundy to pass to the outside held the strong side safety and linebacker just enough for them to get caught up in the trash of and and open up that seam. So it was just enough. So. Yeah, you're you're right. Gundy did mention that, and it looked like Gunner had the read to throw. That linebacker to the field side kind of dropped a little bit yeah. on that initial fake, but the throwing lane was still there. I think that one, like you're saying, was more of a kind of field read, knowing they had that fake on and knowing they were overloaded to the trip side. I, I love that play call. Josiah, I saw people mention the pullers, great blocks. Obviously, Ollie finishing his block into the end zone. Josiah Johnson sealing the edge, though was a key block on that play, which I think isn't being talked about a ton. And it it kind of sprung the initial kind of bust through the hole from Ollie, which he's been great at that all season. Yeah. Yeah. Really cool play. And I agree on jo Josiah Johnson has been a quietly good blocker all year. Um, you know, which which I think uh we were kind of under the impression that what was it? Um Edenfield was going to be the yeah. the bulldozer and Josiah was going to be the receiver. And it, it really, his blocking ability has basically kind of deemed Edenfield to the bench because we, they didn't need him, you know, which was, 
a good thing generally because he he can do both. So that's great. So yeah. Speak, speaking of guys playing snap counts wise, first time all season, only five offensive linemen played. I, yeah. I thought that was pretty incredible. There was get there was one game. I think it was the Houston game. It may have been a couple of games before that where Materico only came in for like two snaps or something like that. But this was the first true game where all five offensive linemen played. And only 16 guys played on offense. Fewest all season. You mentioned Ed and Field. Not that he was playing much this year anyway, but he was out with injury. He got injured in, in the bowl game prep, bowl game practice. But Josiah Johnson played every snap at tight end and Braden Casty played every snap at fullback. So they kind of just went with their guys and outside of mixing in Cam Hurd at Z and Kill Cavanis at X, it was those main 11 that pretty much stayed out there the entirety of the game. Yeah, which is kind of, I would have loved to have been able to see some new guys. So it's kind of like, um, like that was the one thing that I hated about the first half of or the second half. Like I would have, I obviously would have loved to blow them out. Um, I think a lot of fans like to watch blowouts because they're fun and it's fun to watch your team like blow them out. Like for me, like, you know, that's cool. But, um, <laughs> but like, I would have, I would have loved to see more of Cameron Hurd and, um, and some other young guys uh, out there, you know, getting like meaningful snaps to kind of go in. Cause I do think that there's a certain aspect of bowl games now that are like kind of a half, spring game it's like a preview of the spring game just because the you know they are a little bit watered down in terms of its value um and when you play only your guys that you've been riding all season plus a lot of the super seniors that are out of eligibility it's like you know you don't necessarily get the whole value but at the end of the day winning is everything so obviously you have to prioritize that over everything so yeah I, and you know just kind of looking at some of those snap counts and you talking about other guys coming in one of the reasons I don't think we saw any other receivers is they didn't run a single snap out of 10 P there were no yeah. four receiver sets. I can't remember the last, I know they didn't go to 10 personnel a lot this season, but I can't remember the last time an OSU team didn't run a single snap with four receivers on the field. I know a lot of times when they go to that, it's more of that hurry up two minute offense, but it still kind of shocked me that they didn't even go to it once. It makes me think they don't, have a lot of guys that have had a ton of reps in the slot with, you know, losing Blaine Green to the portal, losing Arlen Bruce at the beginning of the season. Brandon Presley obviously would be on one side, but when you have to move Rashad Owens to the outside, who's had some reps there, I don't know if they really had a true H receiver on the roster that they'd be given a ton of reps to there. Yeah. I think it kind of goes back to Josiah Johnson's value. Um, you know, as a, as a pass receiver and how capable he is. So that, that thing. And also too, did they have a lot of third and longs? I knew they threw the second interception and a third and long. Um, there were I think it, three, there were three that were third and nine or more. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't think that there were a ton of situations. Um, and also too, you got to think about it this way. When you're looking at a loaded box with one high safety, it takes a lot. I mean, honestly, you really need, you need that extra tight end sometimes for protection. So um, it makes sense what I would have guessed that 10 personnel would be zero snaps. No, but I would say probably like, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten, 10 um, lower percentage than maybe uh, other games. That, 
That is one thing you just mentioned with kind of the extra man protections. You see the zero sacks in this game. And, you know, I do think the offensive line pass protected well, but they kept Johnson and Cassidy in multiple times with Ollie for some seven man pass roads. So it's something, you know, you see that zero sacks and you're like, man, that's awesome for the offensive line. But I do think it's something you have to note when you're talking about pass pro that I think it was Braden Cassidy only ran a route on like eight of his snaps or something like that. It wasn't a very high number. And then, you know, he's out there for, you know, what was it like? I have Cassidy at 27 snaps. So, you know, they passed it multiple times when he was out there and he stays into block. So that is something just wanted to call out when we're talking about some of the formations and stuff. They were pretty good on first down in this game. 5.7 yards per carry rushing. Three rushes of 10-plus yards on first down. And they threw for 8.1 yards per pass on first down. I think where they got into a little bit of trouble is I don't think they were very good on second down in this game, which it didn't end up being a lot of third and longs, but it ended up being a lot of third and I think like five or sixes that you know they converted. I mean, they were 50% on third down, but... I think second down was where they struggled a little bit in this game. Real quick, just circle back to the uh, the pass protection. So, you know, they, this team hasn't given up a lot of sacks all year, right? Um, and a lot of that is pass protection, but also, too, the fact that Alan Bowman makes quick decisions. They built in a passing, you know, quick tactical passing offense around him. And also he throws the ball away more than any other quarterback in the country, right? But one thing that I paid attention <laughs> to when I was rewatching the game was – on the like the six man pressures versus the six man protections so that's generally a, a tactical advantage for the defense you know where cuz a lot of times you're talking about like to actually get a hat on a hat in those situations is kind of tough like a lot of times defenses will bring overload one side and it's not and they did so well between not only the tight ends and the fullbacks but also Ollie getting in there Ollie is actually a really strong pass protector for a running back I think um and and I know this because we've had so many bad running back pass protectors in previous <laughs> years um so I was really impressed with the six and to a certain degree seven man protections against pressure holding up really really well um and I think that was a, a key contributor to uh to, to Bowman having what zero sacks on 49 pass attempts. That's yeah. really impressive. Um, yeah. And so. you're right about his qu getting the ball out quick in this game. I know you mentioned that point. I had a note down to bring this up. PFF, which obviously I didn't track this. So this could be off a little bit, but they have him at 2.11 seconds time to throw. That's his fastest all season. And I think a lot of that was due to what we're talking about. Some quick, quick screens, quick RPO throws, and then the deep ball, fade, go balls, which are the kind of the one step and get it out of your hands. So it's pretty interesting, and I think that also was a good point by you to bring up when talking about the zero sacks and kind of including that all together. So it, it's definitely interesting. You know, Brendan Presley basically laid out the game plan exactly like you do. Hit him in the flats on quick spits and then get the ball deep down the sidelines. I have them giving up 13 sacks. In 14 games, by the way, which is that's the, the pass protection and just decision making from Alan Bowman this season yeah. were pretty incredible altogether in pa in passing situations. I did want to mention 
motion. We talked a lot about motion on this podcast. You and I have talked a lot about motion. They didn't use a ton of motion in this game. So for comparison purposes, 47% of their snaps had some type of motion or shift against Texas. Only 30% against Texas A&M. They did some of that full shift motion motion where Ollie split wide and they're an empty. And then they kind of go back to one of their normal formations with Ollie and pistol. One of the tight ends at H back. They did some orbit. They did some Brennan Presley lined up as outside receiver motioning back inside some across motion. I saw a little bit more Owens motion in this game. I think than we've seen previously some of the pre-snap stuff where Cassidy's in motion and they run that double tight end counter. But I think my thought, and I wanted to, see what you thought about this, why there wasn't a ton of motion in this game. And there still was 30%. They were going tempo a lot and they were doing a lot of the kind of lineup, see what A&M is going to do, check with me and then change the play. But you don't really need motion out of that. You want to kind of snap it quick off the check with me. I, I think it was that. I think they wanted to see how A&M was going to line up and attack them instead of trying to confuse them with motion because I think A&M overall was fairly vanilla on defense. Yeah, I think, well, well if you break it down, like, like take a step back. Why do you use motion? And I think usually it's to try to gain some type of leverage advantage, right? So, for example, like, you know, in a man-to-man situation, move someone across the formation so so they're trailing or they're behind the defender. And the other one is is to, for the defense to show their cards. And like you said, AM had a pretty vanilla defensive game plan. They ran man coverage with one high safety most of the time, and they provided a lot of numbers in the box. So from a passing perspective, like you already know what you're getting. Like, you know, do you really need to run motion to be able to generate uh, that level of visibility into the defensive game plan? Probably not. And and there are, I think there are some disadvantages to, to motion too that you can pick back up with not when you already know the defense, what you're gonna get. You know, so for example, like when you're running motion and you're 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 running side to side, a lot of times that may m- limit your ability to get vertical. And with those vertical shots, when you're just aligned and you can just go straight up the field, well that gives you a better uh a better opportunity to get a field faster. So I think basically they said, "Hey, let's do let's do motion when it makes sense." Like you mentioned, the run game, like when they do the the tight the fullback motion and they come back in. Well, that takes a the uh you know that takes a number out of the box, and then they bring it back in the box when they motion back in. Most of the time, that that defender doesn't get aligned properly when they come back in the box, so it still makes sense for them to get that leverage advantage. In the past game, I don't think that it added a lot of value because they were so vanilla, you know. So that's the way I see it. I don't know what the, you know, obviously the the motivation was behind it, but I would imagine that played a role. Yeah, I agree. Do you think, what do you think the main reason that they do that full shift motion and why they've only used it in like three games this year where they have Ollie at receiver? They did it quite a bit against OU and they did it a lot in this game. I think these were two of the main games, a little bit against Texas, is that something to do with maybe against the more talented defense, against the more talented athletes, just trying to get them to misalign, like what you're talking about with that fullback motion where they don't get fully reset again? I just, I want, it's something I, I know you and I have talked about off the podcast, but just for the listeners, I thought I'd ask you because they really only used it in a few games this year out of the, you know, 12 that they played, 13 that they played. So, yeah, I think, uh, 
I think a lot of it has to do with the way defenses play. So, for example, like if you're a like let's say in that alignment, you're the feet or the uh, boundary cornerback. Well, you're going to take the most outside person, which a lot of times is Ollie Gordon, and then he then comes back into the formation as a running back. So like there's all kinds of different switches that have to happen in a very short time period. Um, I, so there's that, like you have to communicate effectively with uh, your other, and, and you know, if it's zone coverage is not as important, you just kind of like, all right, I'll just, I get realigned based on the new formation. But if it's man coverage, I think there's a lot of switching that happens and you, you potentially sometimes can find yourself with more favorable matchups so, for example, if the communication doesn't happen, and let's say like it's more of a stacked alignment or something, because they do that a lot too, where they'll be all over the place and then they'll come and do like a stacked or a bunch formation. And then it's like, all right, who's taking who? And there's some confusion. And then you end up getting a more favorable matchup than you would have if you would have lined up that way in the first place. And then I think like 20% of it is just like, like messing with them, like saying, Hey, <laughs> like, it's more of like, just like almost like a joking fashion of like, we're just going to like, we're going to mess with you just because we can. And, you know, kind of like a more of like a middle finger to you type uh, mentality. Um, I don't know how much, like what percentages, but I do think that that's well, a thing. Getting the favorable matchups makes a ton of sense. And I love the messing with you part too, because you and I've talked about this there's not a ton of different route concepts that Dunn runs and he likes to run the same concepts multiple times in a row if he hits on them. So getting a favorable matchup when you know that that's kind of your playbook, I think is important, especially when, you know, earlier in the season, when you're working in receivers that are kind of your backups and trying to get some favorable matchups for them in Leon Johnson and Rashado. And so I think that point makes a lot of sense that you made. Another thing too is is it's a good point that they don't run a lot of route concepts, right? So think about it this way. When you watch film, right, you're looking at tendencies and you know, and it's really about like how you line up and you need time to be able to identify those tendencies, right? Well, when you line up something different and then you shift into something very quickly and then snap the ball, you don't have enough like time to recognize the fact that this is the same play that they ran the, the play before right <laughs> two plays so, before as well yeah yeah exactly so like i think at the end of the day you kind of take the film and the film review and kind of throw it out the window because you're not necessarily changing the play you're just changing the dynamics of digesting what the play could be uh so i think it's it's smart in a few different i i would imagine probably what they do i think they do it a lot on that mesh play um, it's like, Hey, oh, yeah. what's, what's the, what are the three or four plays we run 10 times a game that we know are going to work most of the time that we have to mask the most. And let's do it on those plays. I think is probably the, the methodology behind it because they know that they know it's going to, they know it's going to work. They just need you to hesitate for like a half second. <laughs> and this gives them that half second, I think. Yeah, no, that makes so. a lot of sense. All right, well, let's get into a little bit, if you're good with it, offensive line, Ollie Gordon. We'll kind of start on the run game, and we can mix in pass pro as well. Scheme-wise, zone, I counted 15 zone runs. You know, they mixed, they do that. They've kind of went 
back to that wide zone that they ran a lot with the Mason Rudolph, James Washington offenses. They had a lot of RPOs out of that run concept. They mixed in that. I saw some inside. I saw one, I think it was one play that looked like true outside where the entire offensive line was flowing to the perimeter and not looking to get that vertical push. Only 3.2 yards per carry out of zone. The counter and dart and the gap scheme runs is where they kind of made their way against this Texas A&M defense. I had 12 gap runs, GH counter, GT, the quarterback super counter we talked about, the double tight end, the dart, going for 85 yards, 7.1 yards per attempt. I also made a note too, Adam. I don't know if you think this. So I didn't actually track it. I just wrote this down as I was watching the game the second time when I went back through and just kind of made sure my notes made sense. They ran quite a bit of plays into the boundary. What did you think kind of overall of that scheme and how it was blocked by this offensive line? Yeah, I don't I don't necessarily understand the logic behind it. Um maybe they thought that they had like a a personnel uh you know advantage or 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 maybe they thought that they were expecting more pressure off of the field side. I'm I'm not 100% sure. That they ran that pitch play to Gordon. It was like a 5-yard loss, which is like really polarizing to me. Uh, I don't think that has a pitch play ever worked into the boundary in the history of football. Well- he got so wide on the pitch, which I don't think was wrong, like step wise from him. But by the time Bowman makes the pitch, I think he there was like three yards before he would have been like at the sideline. There's right. nowhere for him to go. Yeah, I, I don't understand. I think one thing that makes Ollie Gordon a really special running back is his ability to break tackles, let's say around the hash and then beat that edge DB to to win the sideline and you take that out of the equation because you've got that extra defender in the sideline that's so pressed up so um yeah I don't, I don't i don't really understand the logic behind that um i'm sure there was something that led them down that path but it, it didn't seem to work very well so yeah i wasn't a huge fan of that either just kind of looking at the offensive line we talked about first time all season only five guys played we talked about the zero sacks i think pff had four of their pressures, which they count it. I believe the way they count it is the pass. If the pass is completed, they'll still count it as a pressure where you're not getting a QB hurry on like stat broadcaster ESPN in that manner. But overall, I actually thought that the offensive line block blocked pretty well in the run game. I didn't think it was like the best blocking I've ever seen. You know, there were a couple whiffs on polls. I do think that and i know you can't do it every time because teams will catch on to the tendencies that you're talking about when they're watching film i don't know if i love cole birmingham being the polar on gh counter wilson seems to block that better and birmingham actually is a good down blocker or a guy to release up to the linebackers if you need him to release up there in zone but obviously you know you can't you can't just run counter the same exact way every time or teams are going to catch on to it but I thought Cole actually, this was the start, just kind of focusing on him for a second, Adam, I can throw it back to you and you can go whatever way you want on the offensive line. I thought this might've been one of the first games all season where Cole didn't look like that knee was really hampering him a ton. He ran down on that first dart run. He released to the second level, made the block on the defensive back and then ran all the way down after Ollie 15 yards down the field and picked him up after he got tackled. I just thought 
maybe that's a good sign going in for next season. Yeah, no, I he he definitely looked a lot more mobile. Like I think that stood out because you know, let's be honest, how many games uh, in the last five or six games where you're like, man, Cole had a rough game, um, and he's he's I think steadily he's improved, um, you know, over the back half of the season since he basically kind of came in and replaced uh, Jason Brooks. Um, so I I would be interested to see. I agree with your assessment on him pulling. You know, Preston Wilson is is a really good puller, I think, uh, just because he's he's a little bit more athletic. Um, I'd be interested to see how many of those yards on those counter plays went to the left uh, yeah. instead of the right. And I, I, every single long run I'm thinking about, um, maybe with the one exception of one, I feel like was to the left side. Um, so I, I think that kind of hammers that home where it's like, you know, I think Cole's best when he's working right in front of him or climbing, you know, three, four yards up instead of actually getting out of his stance. Um, now, maybe that'll change with the full offseason and getting him healthy, um, which we've seen some high high play from him in the past when he is healthy, um, where he's been pretty good. And that we didn't really see that from him this year. And I do think that his mobility was improved uh, in this particular game. And I just overall assessment of the run blocking, I mean, yeah, I think they were they were good. I think Dalton Cooper kind of stood out for me as a guy. I th- actually think both tackles were pretty good. Um uh and as a player that the you know kind of excited about to be honest with you. I hope he gets I hope he's able to come back. I'm not sure if that's still up in the air or not. Cooper. Um yeah, Cooper. He'll be he'll be back. Okay. So I mean, I think he really had a strong finish to the season. Um but I think if you you actually break down some of the unsuccessful run plays and you actually look at it, and figure out, I you know, identify each individual assignment and what what actually happened. I think a lot of times you find that 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 plus one defender was down there wrecking havoc, um, which is just kind of part of it. Uh, could they have blocked better? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a few plays that they left on the table, but generally speaking, I think you know, you think about a loaded box, and Ollie still gets four you know four point four and a half yards of carry, um, and you're able to throw for four hundred plus yards because of that. Uh, I think that's something you're going to take 10 out of 10 times, you know? Yeah. I, I mean, I think it's a, per, it's a perfect kind of call out from you about that extra guy, because especially on the zone runs, I talked about them not being very successful, getting about three yards per carry, but it seemed like the offensive linemen were getting off their double teams, getting to the linebackers. And then Ollie's having to go two one one versus two third level guys that are firing down into the box and they're hitting him for about a three or four yard gain. So everyone's kind of covered up who you would expect to be in the box. And those extra guys are coming down and making the play. So I thought that was a good assumption for you. Just kind of some of the guys we haven't talked about Joe Mahalski. This is like one of the first games. I think I, I had very minimal notes on him. He didn't really pop to me one way or the other, which I think normally with the offensive line, that means a good thing. I didn't know if you had any overarching takes on him. No, I mean, I, I just think, I think there was a lot of tough matchups. I think there was some, you know, again, I think A&M's defensive line, there's a lot of, t- lot of talent there. And they, the fact that nothing stood out, um, I think is, is a good thing. Um, was able to hit some of those stretch blocks. Well, um, didn't get overpowered. Um, you know, did, did they get maybe the downhill action that they wanted on every play? No. Um, but I think that to a certain degree that was expected. And uh, um, 
Yeah, I mean, I I don't I don't have any like like crazy takeaways other than the fact that he was they they were sufficient. I guess is a good way to put it. So no, I, no, it's a I, I love it. All right, well, just kind of focusing on Ollie a little bit. Some stats real quick before we break down his his gameplay. He became the fifth player in Oklahoma State history to reach more than two thousand all purpose yards in a season finishing with 2,062 yards. The only other Cowboys to reach that mark are Barry Sanders, Chuba Hubbard, Thurman Thomas, and Terry Miller. He finished the year ranked among OSU's all-time leaders in several single-season categories, including rushing yards. He was sixth, all-purpose yards fourth, rushing touchdowns tied for fourth, and touchdowns scored tied for fourth. He recorded 100 rushing yards for the ninth time in 14 games this season, with obviously all nine coming in the final 11 games. 27 carries, 118 yards, 4.4-yard average, one touchdown, along of 25. He had three over 10 yards, four targets, two receptions for four yards, 103 yards after contact. That's the fifth game this season with over 100 yards after contact per PFF. Sixth missed tackles force that's tied for second most in the game this season, but he's had several games around sixth. One thing from PFF, Adam, that I thought was interesting is they give this elusiveness stat to running backs, which they say measures the success and impact of a runner with the ball independently of the blocking. They graded him a 92.7, which is kind of about average for him this year, a little bit middle of the pack. Watching the game, and I, I know sometimes I completely disagree with some of the, the stats like that from PFF, but I do think it was probably about an average game for Ali. I didn't think he was amazing, but obviously, you know, talk, when you add in things like pass pro and just his, you know, his blocking on the gunner TD run, I think he was still good. I just didn't think I, he didn't to me super positively in this game. And I thought, you know, he missed a couple of holes and then he had a couple of good runs. So, and then he gets the personal foul call at the end of the play. I just thought it was maybe an average game for Ali overall. I don't, I don't know about your thoughts. I guess I'm beating a dead horse, but I think the, some of his best runs were in the count uh, throughout the season were in those counters where he was able to find a incredibly late hole with jump cups, jump cuts in the box. Like, you know, go back to West Virginia game, Cincinnati game, all that stuff. Or, so that's one way, or where he finds space, you know, through the through the tackle and tight end. And then, you know, it's kind of like a, a backwards seven, <laughs> if you will, uh, going <laughs> to the left, right? So you go through the hole and then, you know, take a left and then beats that DB on the outside. Like those are basically, you can go back and look at, Every long run, and it's it's one of those two. He had a few of the backward seven runs <laughs> uh, where he beats, you know, and those that that was were where a lot of his runs actually generated yards. He almost had none of the counter runs where he finds the late hole. And I think that, that circles back to the, you know, just the sheer box numbers. They, there just weren't a lot of holes there. Um, and I think he, he did a good job of generating and churning out a lot of those three and four yard runs that probably should have been one or two yard runs. Those are not going to show up on a stat sheet um, as, as, and it's probably not even going to be graded out on, you know, PFFs computers as, as, as good runs. In my mind though, if you look at, if you itemize out what everyone is supposed to do and what actually happens and he is able to get another 
let's say a, a, a one to three yards in addition to that with the extra defender, that's a really, that's a huge net positive in my book. So that he did a good job of that. That's not going to blow out any stats or, or impress a lot of people in the general public. Um, I, I think that that is something that, that was able to, to give them those third and threes and those third and fours where Alan Bowman and this offense really thrives in is, you know, the fact that they are so efficient in the short passing game enabled them to, to have a lot of success with Brandon Presley having 16 catches, you know? So, (laughs) so if you think, I think if you look at the sum of its parts, I think he played a really good game. Did he have the home run hitters? No. Um, Could he have turned a few of those into home run hitters potentially? Uh, but I think it's probably more of a product of what the defense was doing. They were not going to allow him to do that, I think. Yeah. And they didn't allow him to do that. And I think that's okay. But uh, if you look at what he was able to accomplish with what he was given, in addition to what it was op- able to open up outside of it, I think that's a net positive for OSU, I guess is the way yeah. I would put it. No, that makes sense. You talked about Brendan Presley's 16 receptions. So let's get into a little bit. We haven't talked a ton of Alan Bowman. We've mentioned Owens and Presley and Leon Johnson, but let's get into those guys a little bit more. In the passing game, I had OSU using some type of play action or post-snap RPO action on 50% of their snaps. PFF had it at 42. For comparison purposes against UT, it was like 29%, but obviously they're down a lot in that game. I It just seemed like they were kind of dropping back. I don't, you know, you and I were run into the beer counter a lot and missing a lot of those plays. So I don't really remember being down that much, but anyway, they hit a lot of wide receiver screens. We talked about that, the fade and go balls. They had the RPO game going in a multiple different ways. A couple of cool RPOs that I thought, you know, were, were interesting that they mixed in some tight end rail stuff. And then we saw mesh. We saw some levels rollout stuff, some stuff that looked like Y cross Shallow concept with Cassidy coming in the shallow route and Brendan Presley going over the top of him on the dig over the middle. A cool slot fade to Owens that he almost came down with where they threw it to him deep out of the slot, which I thought was something, an interesting wrinkle that Dunn added in. My personal opinion before I throw it back to you, and you know, they're, without Dijon Stribling, who we thought might make it back, no Jalen Pope. Not a ton of depth without playing Green and Jaden Bray on the roster. I thought Owens, Presley, and Leon Johnson blocking. They had eight missed tackles forced, which is tied for the second most in a game this season. 183 yards after the catch was the third most in a game this season. I thought these three were incredible in this game, and it might have been their best game all season as a unit. I, I think I'm doing the math right. Between the three of them, they had 30 catches for 402 yards and two touchdowns. I mean, between three receivers, thir- 30 catches. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it, I, it's kind of funny. Like, they, Rashad was kind of the, uh, like, the big play guy um, to a certain degree. Brennan was, like, the every single, like, Brennan basically was playing a, outside running back (laughs) you know he had a few like you mentioned y crosses and posts and stuff but for the most part he was doing his dirty work where he usually does and then you know you then you throw leon johnson uh out there where you know more or less when they need a prayer 
they just say run a go route and we're going to throw it up to you in that one catch he made was just unbelievable where he had to reach back inside um and and catch it so you know i, I it's funny brendan presley was the only pr- uh opening game starter of this group leon johnson i think potentially was third or fourth team um i don't really even know he was not on the depth chart at the practice the we were at he wasn't even running reps out there with the ones and the twos yeah and Rashad Owens, I think, was definitely squarely with the twos in the first game. So you're basically talking about your number one receiver, more or less, your your backup, you know, X receiver, and your fourth string Y receiver or Z receiver. I'm sorry. And and they put up 400 yards, and it's... you know, it's just unbelievable production from from kind of a ragtag group that really came together at the end of the year um, to, to produce a lot of numbers. And I think we, we owe a special shout out to Leon Johnson because I think, I don't know if it was on this podcast or maybe it was just us talking, but like, you know, after seeing him in, in action in April, I remember both of us thinking like, you know, this is probably a wasted scholarship, you know, and his, imp- and I don't feel like that was a bad observation. Like that was a good observation based on what we had seen. That's the level of improvement. He's, he, he saw over a six or seven month period. Like he came in and with no coaching and a lot of raw ability, but very little technique and, and all that and had a pretty incredible season considering he only played like seven games. So kudos to him for making us look dumb. Um, <laughs> I would argue that we, was well, we didn't, we weren't dumb. We were just saying what we saw. Um, but my only, the only thing I hate is, is that, you know, I wish he could come back. I wish we got him a year earlier, but it is what it yeah, is. He, he's such a good blocker too. I know I've already said that like yes. three times, but he's so good blocking on the screens or just even blocking on run plays when Ollie runs it to his side. So I thought that was awesome. He was two of two on contested catches. They were both on go balls. He's not always the guy creating a ton of separation, but he's so good with his hands and getting them in a spot where he can make a catch, even if the vendors on him. Talk, speaking of Brennan Presley, you mentioned a lot of his work was done in the screen game. So he had 137 yards after the catch of his 152 yards. That was the most all season. His average distance of throw, so target, was 2.6 yards on the and game. I bet you if you took out, he ran that one post on third and eight or whatever. And I think that was probably like a 15 or 16 yard play uh, when he caught it. So if yeah, you took yeah, that yeah. one one out... I would almost imagine you may be looking at a, a line of scrimmage <laughs> average, like a zero yard average zero yard average with 152 yards receiving. That would be, that'd have to be pretty, that's like a Xavier worthy stats. Like in the Texas you know, he game. Went the over, he went over a hundred catches for the year too. And I think, I can't remember if it was on this podcast last year or maybe, maybe it was one in August. I think I came on, we were talking about it and I was like, Brendan Presley should get a hundred catches this year. And I remember thinking, like, man, after game five or six, I was like, I was way off. <laughs> I was like, this is a bad prediction. And, yeah. and finally, I think they came to their senses or they're like, all right, we just got to feed him. Um, also, too, just a random thought. How durable is Brendan Presley? Has he ever missed a game from injury? No, he takes so many hits, too. No, I mean, not like more than I like. I think he's good at avoiding hits, but he takes yeah. big hits because – He's so small, so I think it's a great call out by you. His 
You mentioned the 101 catches. That's tied Josh, Josh Stewart for fourth most in a season in school history. He's now fourth in catches in OSU history with 225, seventh in receiving yards with 2,548, and he tied – the reception record in a single game with Alex Lloyd, which he was one shy of earlier this season. So that, that record's held since 1949. So he also threw a pass and I thought he did a great job of holding the fake on that. It was, pass. A, it was a nice throw too. Like on the run, like that's a tough throw. And, you know, it's a little bit under throat, but that's, that's something that's going to be expected from your receiver rolling, right. You know, for a 30 plus yard throw. Uh, I think he was he was basically like pounding his chest in the post game about uh, how he needs more reps at quarterback. Um, but you know, Alan Bowman of... said he told him to bend his knees and explode through the throw, and he said he did that perfectly. <laughs> so just don't take advice on from Bowman about the follow through. Yeah, might want to talk to Rangel yeah. or floors about that one we need to get to we need to get to bowman just last one rashad owens he was named the mvp he had 164 yards and two touchdowns the way he creates separation with his hands and yes does it in a way to not get called for a penalty is elite it's elite when that's that's a lot of casey dunn i mean that's just that's Casey Dunn 101 right there. And you go back and look at Tylen Wallace. You go look at James Washington. Uh, go back and look at the hand swipes from James Washington. You know, everyone thinks that he's got this long stride speed. James Washington was like a four five five guy. And like, yeah, he had some long strides and, and good speed. You win with your hands where the DB is trying to get their hands on you. And, you know, you do that hand jostling. And and actually, Leon Johnson's gotten a lot better at this as well. But Rashad Owens is like putting a master class on right now. Rashad Owens doesn't have top end speed. Like if he if you're in the forty, I bet it'd be in the four sixes. But like you mentioned, he creates separation by those hand chops and and winning those the hand jostling. And and actually, he kind of came out of nowhere with this going up and and high pointing balls, like that one he dropped. I think you were talking about where – is that the one out of the slot? Yeah, um, that's that slot fade that he ran. He didn't drop it. I mean, it was a good play by the DB. I didn't want to make it seem like it was a bad play. And he like, hit the he ground up and, so hard on that right, as well. He went up and got that ball over in between sandwiched into two people. So if he can consistently go up and do that, like that's a serious weapon right there. Um, yeah, I mean, so that's something I'm to so pumped. If he, I know he hasn't officially announced, but he basically said he was coming back, and Ollie kind of alluded to it as well. So – I think it's going to be awesome to have him in the room again, even just not only for his field on field play, but this is a, a guy that, you know, I don't know his coaching ability personally, but just because of his experience at every receiver spot playing cowboy back, this is a guy who can coach the younger guys with Trayson Wallace and Casey Dunn at practice and kind of coach them up to be able to do some of these things that we were talking about. So pretty incredible all around from Owens, Let's wrap up and, you know, we can talk a little cowboy back. We, we've talked a little bit of Josiah and Cassidy already. So let's wrap up with Alan Bowman before we move to the defense. 34-49 for 402 yards. That's 69% completion percentage. Two touchdowns, two interceptions. Kind of wild, these stats real quick, Adam. He finished the year ranked among OSU's all-time leaders in several single-season categories. And he didn't even get the starting job until the Iowa State game. Seventh in passing yards, fourth in completions, 
and 10th in total offensive yards, which is kind of attributed to him there. He, th- he said he thinks he'll know on that waiver in about 10 to 15 days. He also said all the receivers are coming back, even though Brendan Presley said he's going to quote Ollie Gordon and say he's on his own time. Gundy's only big knock on him was when you're up multiple scores, don't force the ball into coverage. He was blitzed. I mean, I thought AM came after him a few times in this game. It was one of the highest PFF bliss percentages since the Cincinnati game. Not under pressure a ton, which we've talked about. 12 passes attempted 20-plus yards down the field, completing five of them. That's the most all season. The next closest was the Iowa State game with nine. I thought he was really good changing plays at the line of scrimmage when that signaled in from the sideline doing some of the check with me. He's great with his double double clap snap count. He gets almost gets guys to jump every time he does that. He kind of messed up the uh, fake snap that they were trying to do because he looked at the wrong sideline. He called himself out for that after. It looked like he wasn't <laughs> ready for the snap. But before I throw it over to you, Adam, and we talked about the time to throw, adjusting completion percentage at 77.1%. I know he had the picks. I had him with three turnover-worthy plays. I counted the one that he tried to force to Presley over the middle that the DB got a hand on. I thought that guy probably could have caught that, so I counted that one. He made, though, some incredible throws in this game, not just on the fade balls, not just on the go balls, but even on the quick game stuff. He just puts the ball in a spot where only his guy can make the play. And when he's giving it to Presley, he gives him space. He puts the ball to where Presley can keep his movement in the direction he was going and get some yards after the catch. Yeah, I mean, some of his touch, I mean, we knew coming into this that the touch throws and the short throws were his strengths. And I think you just, I mean, what did we just talk about? Screen throws and go balls, you know, and that's what what they did pretty much the whole game, which you saw play out. Uh, And, you know, that I think it was the longer touchdown to Rashad Owens. I think it was like 25 yards was just an absolute perfect throw. I mean, perfect distance, you know, outside shoulder. You can't throw the ball better than that. And I think that's what you get with him a lot is he puts the ball regularly in the position where it needs to, you know, it gives the receiver the best chance to make the catch. And when you have guys like Owens that and and Johnson that have are, are really kind of bought into creating that separation with their hands and with their physicality, um, you know, you, you get a lot of, of big plays, you know? So I think, I know a lot of people are talking about the interceptions and he finished the season with 14 interceptions, which is a lot. Uh, it's four, you know, I played 14 games. I think Whedon had 13 interceptions in 13 games for reference. Um, but I think if you look at it's, it's the first interception was obviously a poor decision. The one to Leon Johnson one, it was pass interference or holding. It was holding on that route by Leon Johnson, but I'll look overlook that. <laughs> that was that was a bad mistake. Like that ball should have never been thrown. It was probably a fine throw, but he undercut the route. Like just throw it away. Uh, and I think he has a few one to two plays every single game where it's like that's not Alan Bowman. And then ninety seven percent of the other time he's pretty locked in. Um, the second interception was just a, a egregiously bad throw, but it was like a punt. <laughs> it was third and nine, and it was like a thirty yard throw. He, he you know it was it wasn't. It was a net. It wasn't a big deal. Well, it that's was just what I was a about really, to ask really bad you. throw. Do you feel? I, 
I don't have this tracked, so I'm sorry. And I could be way off on this. But do you feel like a lot of those throws, not just the interceptions, but the ones where you're like, that's not Alan Bowman, come on third down? Yeah, a lot of times I think he may be trying to press to push it, um, you know, and kind of press the issue a little bit, which is weird too because he throws so many th- uh, balls away, so you know he has that in him. But it's almost like some third downs where he's just like, I really got to make a play, and um, you know, if if you could take away like three or four plays, and and just add those throughout the season. You know, I think his stats would look a lot different. He only has 15 touchdown passes too, but I think Ollie Gordon has 21 rushing touchdowns. You know, so when you're inside the five yard line, they're giving the ball to to Ollie Gordon. <laughs> you know, um, well, so it's tough for a quarterback to generate great touchdown stats when you're you have the Doak Walker Award winning running back. <laughs> you know, it's a great boy. What are your thoughts before we move to the defense? What are your thoughts on him getting the waiver and coming back next year? I personally, I've said it on this show, I think obviously you need a QB competition, but if Bowman were to be the guy again next year with everything that's coming back on offense, I'm I'm good with that personally. And, and I've explained kind of why, but wanted to get your thoughts. So I'll just open with this. And then in the, so he started... Uh, is it 11 games? 11 yes. Games. Yeah, because the first three he didn't start. Yeah, and there's 14. Yeah. So I think it was... Hold on, I need to do the math again, but uh, hold on, give me... No, 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 that's fine. I And, you know, I'm obviously going to... Whatever you say, I'm going to take the quote out of context, tag you on Twitter, and <laughs> let people come after you. So just remember that. So in the 11 games he started, he averaged 293 passing yards. Um, so if you, if you basically amortize that over 14 games, that's 4,100 pass yards. So if he would have kept that, if he would have started from the, the, yeah, the that trajectory, yeah. And he would have kept that trajectory. He would have had over 4,000 passing yards and probably approaching 20 passing touchdowns, which isn't a huge number, but like I said, we've already talked about that. Um, so, you know, do what, would I want him back? Absolutely. I mean, I think we saw such a, a, a good version of Alan Bowman to build off of. Um, and I, I think uh, he, does he have one or two ridiculously dumb throws a game where you're like, what in the hell was that? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, but look back and, and all, I don't think we've had quarterbacks other than like Mason Rudolph, I think in his senior year when he had like two interceptions and he was just so lights out. That's, that's how it goes. You know, you, you have to be able to, to, to weigh the risk and reward. And I think the reward with Alan Bowman is, is huge. Um, The risk is, is these, these throws and and the way he throws off his back foot and and some of these balls just sail really bad. Um, But it's only like one out of every 20 throws, which is crazy to me because he does not come through. He does not transfer his hips at all on his throws. And it's like his QB coach must just be like, like just losing sleep over this. Um, but anyways, long story short, I think when you look at what's behind uh, with like Garrett Rangel, um, I think Garrett Rangel is more than uh, ready to, to step into a starting uh, role. But when you look at the, the, the sum of its parts, I think that Alan Bowman gives you the best chance to win between all of the options. Absolutely. And, and I know you kind of hit on this when you were going through that, 
and great breakdown. Thank you for that. His decision-making in the RPO game is, is, I know Oklahoma State hasn't always been like heavy RPO depending on who the quarterback is, but if you kind of compare it to some of the recent guys like a Spencer Sanders, not to throw him under the bus because Spencer did some great things, but the decision-making in the RPO game from Bowman is, is I think, really good for an Oklahoma State quarterback when you're kind of looking back and even comparing it to quarterbacks kind of across college football. I think that's one of his strengths. When you think, if you think about it too, one of the the reason why is because uh, those are a lot of timing plays, right? And I, I don't think I've ever seen a better timing quarterback than Alan Bowman, at least like that I've done a deep dive on. There's a throw I put it on. I think I put it on Twitter against OU, where he hits. Uh, I think it's Leon Johnson. Yeah, on hit his track. Back. Yeah, it was it was on the last drive in the fourth quarter. And it's just absolutely perfect. You literally would put that in the encyclopedia for college football on timing. <laughs> um, so I think where he struggles a little bit are the ones where it's like off timing, you know, where it's like he drops back and, he, and you know, he's kind of more improvising. And that's where you see a lot of those uh, mistakes kind of pop in. He should just think, run it. Yeah. Or throw it away. Like, you know, <laughs> hell, have a 50% completion percentage for all I care. Uh, because you th- get a thousand throwaways. Um, if it's third and 12 and there's nothing there, throw the ball away. I don't care. You know, but I think if you think about timing, he did not get the timing down until like game seven with these receivers. Um, maybe even, maybe even after that, to a certain degree, I would say right around, you know, kind of, he was there with the Kansas game, maybe West Virginia a little bit, you know, so what's that game six or seven, um, think about another spring spring, uh, under the, uh, you know, with, with some of these receivers, think about another fall camp running this offense, because have in mind first three, two or three games of the year, like we didn't necessarily see this offense. It was more, it was less RPO and it was more like more, almost like air raid ish, uh, type yeah, offense quick instead passing of, game. Yeah. Right. Instead of power, instead of RPO and power run. So to get that timing down, you could get game six. Alan Bowman in game one next year. Digest that for a minute and think about what level of success you would have for the entire season. I think, I think you're going to see a better product. Yeah. And some of those interceptions from the early games, I mean, he's trying to make plays in his limited amount of snaps. So I feel like you almost have to exclude some of those early on, but I, I think Adam, that was a great breakdown. I know the fans, if we have any fans of this podcast, they wanted to hear about that part. So I appreciate that. Anything else on the offense? If not, I'm ready to. Uh, Braden Cassidy's catch was incredible. That was kind of the last note that I had. And that throw was great as well. I'm really glad that they got him the ball. Braden Cassidy deserves it. So he did some great, great job in the blocking game this year. All right, moving to the defense. This is probably going to be a little bit shorter, Adam. We talked about this off pod. 445 yards of total offense. I know they held him to six points in the first half. In Texas A&M, you know, punt, field goal, field goal, punt, punt in the first half. Red zone defense was really solid in the first half, holding them to those field goals. But there were still quite a few busts. There was still some confusion on my end from kind of what they were doing in the game plan. There were some positives. There weren't a ton of missed tackles in this game. Obviously, you're going against a quarterback who has talent that you have zero film on. A lot of guys out there at receiver who you have zero film on. 
So some of the bust and the play action stuff I get, but what was kind of your overall takeaway from the scheme and general personnel decisions on the defense from this A&M bowl game? I, I thought it was exactly what I would have wanted. Like right when the backup quarterback came in, I'm like, you need to start applying numbers, apply pressure. And, and they, they did that in, in several instances, probably more than they have in the past. Um, and, you know, to their credit, like James Coley, who um, he was terrible at Florida state. So I always have like a really like, like I had negative impression of him. Um, but anyways, uh, I think at the end of the day, from the scheme perspective, they did what they needed to do. I, I still think from a larger perspective, there's some there's some gaps personnel wise. Um, you know, especially you know, they were they were decent uh defending the run. But you know, at the end of the day, I think between the two running backs, AM only tried to run the ball fifteen times. Um more traditional runs. They didn't even really try to run I just think that there's still some gaps in the personnel to do what Nardo wants to do. Um, me and you have talked about Nathan Latou, um, you know, as kind of a weak spot to a certain degree. Cody Walterscheid is kind of, you know, kind of been pretty average. And I actually think Nick Martin was pretty rough in this game as well. This is probably one of his worst games of the season. So, um, you know, I, I thought the coverage in general, like the cornerback situation is really strong. I think I feel really confident there. But they have to figure out in the offseason how to position their personnel better. Um, and I think Nardo's kind of just slowly figuring out what he's got. Um, and and hopefully you'll see some adjustments in the offseason. I have no problem with the scheme, generally speaking. I think they're just trying to get <laughs> – I, I, I would phrase it as they're just trying to get through the season <laughs> um, and just get get through with it, you know, more or less, and just don't blow the game. Um, and they didn't, they didn't give up – any like uh, like game breaking big plays? I don't think. I think what A and M's longest play was was that that throwback tight end pass, uh, which was kind of a gimmick play. Um, but I, I thought overall this was a forgettable performance for sure. Um, oddly enough, I thought Ken, uh, Kendall Daniels was really good in the run game, uh, and I thought the cornerbacks were really strong. Otherwise, I don't think anyone really stood out, uh, with the exception of one player. I will highlight. Um, um, I just went blank, uh, blank Deshaun Brown. So I mentioned Nathan. That's Latou. my guy. Yes. So I mentioned Nathan Latou. Nathan Latou's, I think, out of eligibility. I thought he was pretty average this year. I already think Deshaun Brown's better than Nathan Latou, and I think he should have replaced him probably several games ago. And I think De Deshaun Brown knows how to generate pressure in a bull rush situation which is kind of what you have to do in a three-man rush. You can't go off the edges because you you create huge rushing lanes for the quarterback in three-man rush. You have to win the edge off of these tackles, and he's got the power to do that. So I'm, I'm pretty excited about him for next year. Um, so otherwise, Nathan Latou, we talked about this, Nathan Latou well, and Nick Martin on the same side against rush plays is a total disaster. Like, it's really bad. So just to kind of stick on those guys for a second, Adam, Latou, Gundy called it out post-game in his interview. The play where Marcel Reed scrambled for the 20-yard touchdown. Yes. And he goes inside, and there is no one left out on the edge. Right. I saw some people getting mad at Xavier Benson. 
It no. looked like they were in man, and Benson has the running back there. The running back's staying in the middle of the field. The quarterback could still throw it back to him, and if he does that, the running back's going to probably score a touchdown as well. That's That play was almost completely on Nathan Latou, from my opinion, and along with the other plays that you're calling out, I didn't, that one play right there kind of ruined my perception of him on the game. And as the season went on, kind of, and I know, Adam, you've listened to some of the pods and we've talked about it a little bit, but early in the season, I was really coming after Latou. And then I thought he had some games where he was above average, kind of in the middle. And then I've called him out in the Texas game, I think in the Houston game as well, as kind of dropping off again. And the thing that is weird to me, looking at the snap counts, is Latou and Walter Scheid combined for 65 snaps, whereas Goodlow and Brown only combined for 48. Almost 20 more from those guys when it looks like Brown and Goodlow are both better than your options of Walter Scheid and Latou. And I know they do different things, and they kind of will play different defensive end spots, but that is just, as the season has gone, gone along, when I've looked at those snap counts and watched the games, that's just kind of shocked me at certain times. Yeah, I think... I think it's clear that Goodlow and Deshaun Brown are are the two best options on either side of those. I think Goodlow was probably the best defensive end, probably the def- best defensive lineman on the team throughout the year. Now, maybe the stats don't necessarily agree with that, but I think, you know, on that on that QB touchdown, I mean, you're exactly right. Like your primary goal on that play is you have to keep contained. This quarterback is super fast. Um, he was you know, really, really fast. I mean, he might be the fastest player on the field. You know, that's how fast he was. And you have to keep contained in in your gap. And, okay, you're going to go inside. That's fine. Like, you should have some freedom to be able to to m- maneuver inside if you – if the the tackle sets up too far outside, like I'm not saying you should just bang your head against the wall, keep going through him or outside when the inside's clearly open. But if you're going to go inside, you better sack him <laughs> because yes. or or at a minimum, force him back inside. You cannot give up outside at all. That's your number one responsibility. And he he got inside, and then not only did he get inside, he force the QB to bounce outside. Um, so it's just, and and then, you, you know, Justin Kirkland, who's the heaviest player on the field is stuck trying to, to chase him down. It's just, that's not good sound gap football. Um, and it starts at that defensive end position. So, um, and he's made some plays, but I think at the end of the day, that mixed with the fact that they do a lot of slants and these, these run oriented situations, and he doesn't make it far enough on his slant. You know, if you think about it this way, you're aligned and you need to slant, let's say, two yards to the left. He gets caught up too far on the tackle to where he only makes it a yard or a yard and a half. And then on the back side of that, he sets up Nick Martin for failure because now Mick Mar- Nick Martin has another yard or half a yard to, to fill and they got into trouble many times throughout the season on that. So, you know, I, I think Deshaun, Desh, the difference between him and Deshaun Brown is Deshaun Brown is more physical. And the fact that he's only, what, a redshirt freshman, he's going to pack on more weight this offseason. And I think he's a little bit more explosive as well. 
And I think we're going to find that he's going to be much better against the run, which is what's needed from the defensive ends in this scheme is you have to have good run defending defensive ends. And I think we're going to find that that's a better, I really wish good low was able to come back I because I think he, him and Deshaun uh, Brown um, would be a really, really formidable duo. Um, and good low leaves a, a decent gap, you know? So, yeah, no, I completely agree. What did you think about? So most snaps all season for Colin Oliver lined up on the defensive line and it wasn't so much, I think it was Robert Allen saying on the radio yesterday, that they were in a lot of even front. Actually, a lot of the times they kept Kirkland or clay as a zero tech nose and just walked Oliver down on the edge of the line of scrimmage. What did you think about that? Is that kind of going back to what you talked about at the beginning of your defensive breakdown with Nardo kind of not having the personnel to operate as he wants to, especially when you're going up against an A&M offensive line that was almost at full strength when you're mentioning guys like Chase Besides from the transfer portal actually playing in the game. Is that kind of why you think they went with Oliver down on the line of scrimmage so much from a majority of the game? I would have to think it's because of the quarterback scrambling ability because, um, you know, if, if that was a pocket quarterback and have in mind that late in games to this year, they've gone to that. So yeah. if you go back and look at a lot of the games throughout the year, um, yeah, I think it was the Kansas game where they made that shift to where they, they went to a four man rush, played zone coverage behind them. And then all of a sudden they started making plays. Um, so I think that's been kind of their ace in the hole throughout the season. But I think also, you know, having a, th- um, Having a three-man rush against a mobile quarterback is tough because, you know, they can get out, they can step in and work outside the pocket to either gain yards on the ground or buy more time to get. And I think, you know, that's why dropping eight versus like you want your three to get home, right? In a pass rushing situation, that's so tough when the quarterback gets out of the pocket. Um, So I would think my opinion would be you would bring Oliver up because you feel more comfortable one staying gap sound. So that way you don't put a lot of pressure on lot two that he has to generate that pressure inside, keep your gap, win your matchup and get some pressure and keep them in the pocket. Because at the end of the day, I mean, this, this Reed kids uber talented, but half the throws are coming off of his hand. Look like a field goal. They were so wobbly. Um, so I think they want to keep him in the pocket. They want him to throw into layered coverage. And that's how you do that's how you accomplish that is walking that guy up. I don't think it's like a major scheme shift or anything more systemic. I would think it's more based on the matchup. Yeah, because like you're saying, with it not being a major scheme shift, they still were based out of an odd front a lot of the right. times. They're just walking Oliver up. You mentioned something earlier about the blitzing. They were going heavy six man. Pressure when they brought pressure, bringing all three linebackers. They've done that at times this season. I wanted to get your thoughts. So it, they only got like one sack out of it, I think, in this game, and they did it quite a bit. I don't, my take on it is I don't know how effective bringing Benson on the rush is. I just don't, he's just not a very dynamic pass rusher, in my opinion. Yeah, I think you're really talking about Oliver and Martin are your, are your best pass rushing uh, linebackers. And then probably Kendall Daniels is your best blitzing safety. 
um, just because of how rangy he is. And, and, and also too, have in mind that like when you're blitzing, you're not necessarily always looking for sack production, it's disruption. So hands right. up, you know, Daniel's wingspan, uh, Nick Martin is just super fast. It's like a missile. Like you mentioned, Benson is just, um, like just not necessarily like, I think he's better, uh, probably in more, in more space. So, and that's, that's kind of what we were talking about in the beginning with Nardo, just like finding the right recipe for your personnel. Um, and I, it seems like it's been kind of a process ongoing process, um, to be able to find that out. And I think my gut tells me that generally speaking, we only saw like 50% of, of the capability of Nardo because he's still trying to feel that out. Um, it's the same thing it was with Jim Knowles where in 2018, you know, they had to figure it out. And then 2019, you saw they evolved and they evolved and they evolved some more, um, it's constant evolution. So, uh, but yeah, I mean, there's a lot of limitations with these players on defense that they have to basically overcome. Um, there's also a lot of good players. Like, I don't want, I mean, it's probably a negative, uh, like twist to this defensive talk. But there's a lot to build off of the fact that you've got that level of talent and production uh, from the cornerback position is incredibly like exciting. Yeah. Um, and the fact that your starting safety played like one game, and you got Cam Epps come in and play some really good football, that's really promising. Um, so, anyways, I kind of went off on tangent there, but I think this is not a good defensive performance. But I think they've got a lot of pieces that they can put together. The question is, is can they figure out the other pieces that, yeah. that strong side defensive end that nickel cornerback safety, whatever you want to call it, the strong side linebacker, like where are those pieces coming from? And if they can figure them out, it could be a really good defense. Yeah. And Nardo even mentioned it in one of his post-game interviews this year, when talking about what they were going to do at safety and mentioning moving Dylan Smith around he basically is saying what you and I are saying that he is having trouble figuring this out ba yeah. based on the personnel. So it's, you know, it's, it's going to be interesting to see how it continues. I do think I did want to give A&M a little bit of credit there. They didn't do a lot of different route concepts or anything like that. The, you know, in the run game, they ran some of their GT GH counter stuff. They had a couple QB draws. They did some zone toss sweep, but I don't think it did a good job of mixing their formations up and they kind of, they would go empty. They would spread everything out. They'd come in tight and run the ball and then they'd play action out of those tight formations. And the they didn't do a ton of play action, but they used it. The timing on it was great. I thought, and they were getting Oklahoma state safeties to really bite hard on the run and then throw it over the top. So kind of credit to, I think his name is uh, Cooley or Coley, their tight yeah. ends coach who took James, over the James play calling. Yeah. yeah. So he, I, I thought he actually did kind of a good job there, but there was, it was also pretty vanilla in terms of like route concepts and things of that nature. But when they took their shots, they, they made some plays with some of those play action plays. So I, I did want to give A&M some credit there. When they had two perfect screenplay calls, they had that bubble screen against the blitz. Like they, they definitely, you know, hit lightning in a bottle, if you will, on the the right play calls for the right times, like situational play calling, um, that really, really helped them. And it actually, really, Nardo had to stop blitzing because of that, because they kept gashing them um, with with these like 
pass concepts that beat blitzes and they just called them at the right time. And some of that is skill and some of that is just luck. Like a lot of play calling is luck or you just generate that. And to your point, it sounds like it was strategically kind of packaged together, which is great. Uh, I don't necessarily think I give Coley credit for building in screen game because he knew that the starting quarterback would get hurt. So Marcel Reed would come in and then OSU would adjust <laughs> to blitz. True. Like, you know, a lot of it is just kind of just like throwing something at the wall and seeing if it sticks and it's stuck. So good for them. You know, like you said, uh, uh, props to them for adjusting on the fly. Yeah. A uh, couple other guys I wanted to get your thoughts on Colin Oliver. We haven't talked a ton about him aside from the fact about him playing up near the line of scrimmage. I didn't think it was a great game from him. Obviously, we talked about the linebackers not having a great game overall, but just wanted to see what your thoughts were there. Yeah, he he missed a few tackles, but I think a lot of it was just because, you know, Reed is so dynamic. I mean, uh, there was a few times where where actually Oliver probably would have made a play normally, um, and he just kind of got burned a little bit. He got shook out of his shoes. I think it was at least two or three tackles. Um and I think, you know, under normal circumstances, you probably would see uh, a different, you know, experience from Oliver. Um, but, you know, pretty quiet game overall. I think he's still, uh, my hope is, is that, uh, you know, assuming he's back, you know, next year, he kind of settles into that linebacker spot. I think we saw some really good things and we we also saw some growing pains. So um, I think another year, a, sp- a full spring um, and another summer working, you know, w- with him working in space. Uh, I still think he's not perfect in space and, and we want that to, to kind of see progressions. So, which I I'm assuming is why they went with him as the weak side linebacker and not on the kind of strong side, Sam spot where Benson took over that space thing that you mentioned. But yeah, I, I mean, he just didn't really pop. I don't think at all for me, another guy who I wanted to kind of hit on before we moved to the defensive backfield we talked about Kirkland a little bit, but I thought Colin Clay brought some good energy. He had the two tackles. He got credited for the sack when Xavier Ross was chasing down Reed. PFF has him with two hurries. He only played 18 snaps. You know, he went and made a tackle on a wide or helped make a tackle on a wide receiver screen in the first quarter. I thought he brought the energy every single time. So just wanted to kind of hit on those guys before we moved on to the defensive backfield. Did you have any kind of overarching thoughts on Colin Clay? Just kind of along with in 18 snaps, I thought he brought a ton of energy. Yeah. Nothing huge other than the fact that I thought that the middle of the defensive line was fine. Um, You know, I thought that they, you know, it's the normal slew of double teams clogging up the space. I thought, you know, he generated, like you said, some plus disruption, uh, and Kirkland was just more or less able to kind of hold the line to where those that center and guard double team wasn't able to like completely wash them, you know, one or two yards behind the line of scrimmage. Um, but I think didn't he he actually got credit for a sack, right? I think yeah, on the one yeah. Xavier Ross chased. It was actually Xavier Ross, a good pressure from Ross, right? But Clay got the credit because he was the closest to him when his knee hit the ground. So yeah, I mean, I, I think that they were able to generate. I mean, th- that position is just really kind of screwed from a production perspective because you're just always facing double teams. So any, any level of positive, you know, upward movement you can get towards the quarterback is going to be, is going to be good there. Uh, I will say that when they went to to show it like on film, like if you were going to explain to someone how the nose tackle position played, even picking plays to kind of 
show it because even on the play where you're like, man, he did a good job taking up a double team, he might get pushed backwards a little bit on that play. So it's it's a good call out by you. Well, I think it just to break it down a little bit, it's you know, football's a game of angles, right? So let's say you're let's just say you're the quarterback and let's say it's a you know, it's a five wide, and you just hike the ball to the quarterback and shotgun, right? And you've got your center and your guard right in front of you. Well, put two lines out from the quarterback and kind of create like a triangle, right? And like let's say you got both B gaps. Well, if if that center and guard move up, those angles become more favorable, right? You can run straight to the B gap, but if if that center and guard now are pressed up against you, you now have to work wider to get to those same gaps. So it's like it's so hard to like show that on video, but it's so important from a from a perspective of defending the run where if you can widen them out a little bit, that's give another one step. That's enough time for your line linebackers to now swarm and win that gap. Yeah. Uh so it won't ever show up on a stat sheet. It's very hard to show on film, but it's super important. Yeah, I completely agree. All right, let's wrap up the defense with a little bit more defensive backfield talk. I know we've hit on guys like Kendall Daniels. You mentioned the cornerbacks played well. Just from my takeaway, Adam, one thing I wanted to hit on, you know, DJ McKinney's first start, I know he had the defensive pass interference, but I, th- I thought he played pretty good. I thought Cam Smith had some solid coverage reps. Hale Smith, which it still always trips me out that it's M. Smith on his jersey because his name is McHale. When right. He's obviously referred to as Kale everywhere else. Going into next season, and I wanted to bring this up too because you and I have talked about an idea that you've thrown out personnel-wise for next season. I think you have to figure out a way to get Kale Smith on the field more. Yeah, no, and whether that means a three-man cornerback rotation or four-man cornerback rotation or like I said I think you know we've talked about it kind of moving him into more of a safety role um I I think that could like you said I mean you got to get him on the field because he's the twitchiest defensive back I think they have I mean if you think about it uh both Cam Smith Cam Smith is like 6'1 6'2 I think yeah he's Um, big and so is Corey Black and I don't know. I don't think DJ McKinney is quite that tall. I think he's a little bit shorter, but it's still close approaching six feet, which is pretty good size for, for a cornerback. Um, so they're like more bigger DBs. Like they don't really have that. What I would consider like the Thomas Harper or the, or even like a Broderick Brown where it's like, you just put this person on this receiver and they will stick to him. It's not necessarily their, their game and kale smith is that person so you got to find a way to get him on the field it's kind of funny because he was so lightly recruited i think and we're sitting here talking about how you got to get him on the field uh i would love to see him move to safety and basically play um like your 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 safe he'd be like the third down safety that the slot cover down guy and he could even play cornerback too in, in other downs, but like at least rotate him a little bit. Um, I think that would be a really positive move because they they missed that this year. So. Yeah, I, I agree. And then safety-wise, I know Corey Black had a groin injury, Pope's report reported before the game. Safety-wise, I thought Daniels had a good game. They They seemed, it seemed like the plan was Kendall Daniels, you trigger for the run. 
and we'll figure out what to do behind you in the pass game, whether that be zone or having to cover one safety back there, or even, you know, using some of the linebackers in coverage. I wanted to bring up Trey Rucker. We haven't talked about him a lot. He had the penalty on third down in the red zone and they scored TD on the next play. It looked like that was his man on the pass to Platt. Although I will give him some credit. Platt had played 12 snaps all season coming into this game. So I'm sure he didn't pop on film. I just, you know, he just, he, the way the safeties are aligned in his stop start speed to break on some of those hitch routes or to even break on some of the deeper routes. I just don't think he has the speed to be asked to do that from where he's aligned at times. And I'm not saying don't play him because he's a really good run attacking safety. I actually don't think he's that bad in coverage. He just gets lost sometimes or like we're talking about staring down the run. But I did not think Kendall Daniels had a good game. I thought Trey Rutgers did not have that great of a game in this one. And I think it popped a little bit on film. Yeah, they've got too many run-stopping safeties on the field. Like, you can have one, but I think they have two. So, and I think that would feed into the Kale Smith comment I have. Is like, if you had, you know, truck, Trey Rucker's, you know, uh, exhausted eligibility, right? So, if you had... I actually think he's able to come back. Oh, is he really? Yes. Gundy actually mentioned that. (laughs) So, I think that they need to basically consolidate um, Daniels and Rucker into the same role, more or less, where it's like you got your enforcer safety, and then you basically have two other coverage safeties. The problem is, is that the the lack of defensive line production is a compounding problem at every single layer of your defense. So, oh yeah, the it's the root cause. The, yeah, so like the lack of defensive linemen disruption then sinks your linebackers, which then puts more pressure on run fits on your safeties. So. The fact that they have Rucker and Daniels in there now is probably potentially a, a uh, an actual – it's actually caused by your defensive line, you know. So I think at the end of the day, Rucker and Daniels are not good in, in um, one-on-one coverage, at least against receivers. Tight ends are yeah. probably sufficient. Um, and you, can, you can't have two safeties that can't – neither one of them can cover a receiver. That's just not how modern football works. So they have to find a way to inject more. Um, they have to find a way to get better against the run up front and get lighter or smaller and twitchier on the back end. Um, yeah. So anyways, that's like in the future. I think Kendall Daniels was really good. I think not really good. He was, he was, he was good. Um, I thought Rucker was fine. I thought that holding call was kind of BS. Um, that was really ticky tack. So I don't necessarily fault him for that. Um, I think Rucker was kind of, they just didn't run the ball as much and they didn't run as much stuff in the in lateral. Uh, so that's where he's strong. And so he was exposed down the field. Yeah. Um, and, you know, kudos to Texas A&M for doing that because they knew that, uh, you know, that they could, they could expose them there. So I, I think so many deep shots. I think he had like 10 passes, 20 plus yards down the field out of his yeah. 33 attempts or whatever. And I will say though, I, st- I still think that the cornerbacks held up really well. So good. Um, and, you know, it's an exciting group. I mean, I've been high on DJ McKinney literally since the second he signed. Um, and I think him getting a start was really great. Um, so we'll see. Uh, but I, I think that generally speaking, the secondary played fine. Probably that they probably played the best of the 
the three tiers, I would say, even though that's weird because they gave up 361 yards <laughs> against. Um, but I think it again, was all I, on I, like three huge plays, basically, yeah. though. Yeah. So uh, what, it was the tight end. The, the, basically, what you, the play that you mentioned in the play action. The flat to, to, pass, to, the right the pass. Yeah, the right pass. And then I think Walker had like a 30 or 40 yard catch as well um so and and other than that um you know 20 for 33 is fine from the quarterback um they probably could have gotten their hands on a few more balls considering how inaccurate he was so yeah daniels almost had another pick as well he said the team was making fun of him on the sideline so he's glad he got that one at the end i thought that was kind of funny but just to wrap up real quick special teams i just wanted to shout out alex hale i know he missed a field goal but 27 made field goals in 2023 ties Dan Bailey for second on OSU's leaderboard for a single season. He now sits eighth all time in career field goals with 43. Also wanted to mention both kickers kicking their first place kicks out of bounds was hilarious in a bowl game. <laughs> it's just like the perfect thing to happen in a bowl game. Ward actually kicked Every other kick, I believe in the end zone and his extra points get so much higher than Hale's. I think that was a great move uh, special teams wise by them. And then, you know, the punting was fine. I didn't really have any big takeaways on special teams. Yeah, that, that was a real savvy, uh, uh, savvy move after what was the game was the BYU game that Hale missed an extra point or got yeah, where we're, where I'm standing in the freezing cold about to die <laughs> and we have to miss that extra point. Yeah. So that was a, that was a real nice quiet move by, uh, the coaching staff to make that happen. But yeah, I don't yeah. have any major takeaways. On okay. Teams. Real quick, Adam, do some transfer transfer portal stuff with you and then we'll get you out of here. We know about the big news, Ollie Gordon returning. We know about the guys who aren't coming back. So just to kind of recap those real quick, Jake Henry, offensive lineman, he'll be going to Stephen F. Austin. Ricky Lolahea, defensive tackle, is going to Utah State. Tyrone Weber, Still mention him, even though he's not really eligible to transfer. We've talked about him not getting released yet. Our boy Valami, not even going to try to say his last name. I always mess it up. Offensive lineman. Gunnar Gundy at quarterbacks. Got some recent offers that he's announced, including Indiana State. Jaden Nixon still hasn't committed. It looks like Sam Houston. Ladarius Webb Jr. safety is going to Tulane. Nick Sessions safety. No commitment yet. Blaine Green, wide receiver. I think all signs point to Minnesota, but he hasn't committed yet. And then Jaden Bray, wide receiver, is heading to West Virginia. I did want to mention, Adam, we talked about last podcast. I'm not going to list them all off again. The guys who can't come back due to exhausting eligibility. But Pokes Report wrote an article, and they were talking about the seniors that like accept these kind of gifts, kind of certify, and they speak, saying like it's their last practice, last bowl practice. And they mentioned Israel Isamon Hundley, uh, defensive end, Constantino Borelli at linebacker, Marcus Duckworth at nose tackle, and Cody Walterscheid at defensive end. All guys who I believe could use in the COVID year. It sounds like they're all not returning. So didn't talk about that last podcast. So just wanted to mention it. I believe besides Hundley and Walterscheid, the other two are walk-ons. Walterscheid's probably the only one that's a little bit of a surprise to me out of that group. It's a it's a loss from a defensive in depth perspective, but if they're able to upgrade, I think you would want that over him coming back. Yeah, I think um, 
he was serviceable. He was good at times and serviceable most of the time. So, like, it's almost kind of one of those, like, risky situations because, you know, he's a 285-pound defensive end, pretty good against the run for the most part, but really adds no little value outside of that. So it's like, you know, if you can find someone to kind of take over that spot, which I think they can, um, that would be – I think hopefully it ends up being a net positive. I guess yeah, will. agree. Before we get into the transfers in and some of the new ones since the last time, I wanted to ask you, portal closes on the second. I'm sure some names will trickle out a little bit after, not directly related to Oklahoma State, but just due to how the compliance offices are working with the holidays and everything. There's probably going to be a couple other Oklahoma State guys that enter. Maybe not, but I think you and I both think we maybe see a few names. If you had to pick some, and you don't have to go with depth pieces, but if you had to make a guess at maybe some contributors or guys that could contribute in the future, popping in the portal, what would be some of the names that we would that you would look out for as hopping in before that deadline? Yeah, it's kind of tough to. I mean, I think one thing that you may want to pay attention to is, you know, those guys on the second team and offensive line. You know, if everyone is planning on coming back. Um, like your Indians, your McKinney's, your Calvin Harvey's, your Davis Dotson's, guys like that. Yeah, I mean, for sure. I mean, uh, you know, especially a guy like Kowecki, who's really, you know, on the cusp. I mean, is 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 considered a starter, but just doesn't doesn't play. <laughs> uh, you know, yeah. he's a guy that I think, um, and I have no inside information. I'm literally just like thinking out loud here about people that want to play and are probably good enough to play, but aren't playing. Um, so that's, I, I would think of maybe some backup offensive linemen, especially because a lot of the offensive linemen coming back are all six, six year guys where they would have normally cycled out by now. And they just, they just aren't because they're, they're just, you know, willing to, to play that long. Um, I, you know, the obvious one would be like a Garrett Rangel, who's probably eager to start too. And, and Bowman, you know, We'll hear about his status hopefully in the next few weeks. Um, you know, I, th I think I would highlight the the groups that have a lot of players coming back, and especially the ones that that you know maybe some of those players would have been gone under normal circumstances. Um, and and then also too, I think kind of the Jaden Brays of the world, like the guys that probably are just looking for a fresh start, um, that maybe have had some injuries, maybe um, even some of the DBs. Yeah, the Beemans, like, some of the guys you just yeah, haven't seen a Calvian lot of. Yeah, the like Ray, Raymond Gaze, um, some of those guys that just haven't been able to crack the depth chart. I think Shetron, someone that I would, I would watch closely. I mean, although I think he's definitely in a good position to start next year. You know, he's had some injury issues and things like that. So, I usually I try to pay attention to the guys that have just had bad luck, and then the ones that just seem like they can't break through as ones that I would pay attention to. Yeah, no, I like that. All right, before we get into the transfers in, we'll just hit those real quick. Let's hear a quick word from our sponsor. We want to say a quick thank you to sponsor the Feels Like 45 podcast, Classic Overland. Classic Overland specializes in restoring original Land Rover Defenders designed with your unique style and specifications. 
They go to great lengths to find quality vintage defenders before they begin the restoration process, and their team of experts will guide you through the various exterior and interior options to create the perfect build. Our friends Luke Reed and Robert Dennis of Classic Overland are both Oklahoma State graduates and will work with you through the process to ensure you have a great experience. And in addition, if you purchase a Classic Overland Defender and mention this podcast, the Feels Like 45 podcast, their team will donate a portion of the proceeds to the Pokes with a Purpose NIL Collective. To learn more, you can visit their website, classicoverland.com, and you can contact Luke and Robert at robert at classicoverland.com. Thank you. Go Pokes. All right. So not going to go through the whole list. Not a lot has changed actually since the last podcast in terms of who's committed from the names we've already mentioned, but there are some new names Oklahoma state's been linked to on offense. That's wide receiver Keyshawn Brown from Duquesne. This one's interesting, Adam, because he's the first, I think outside of Jalen Lucas, first true slot receiver type guy, return guy that they've been linked to since Jaden Nixon has left since we've heard Arlen Bruce moving to the CFL. He's 5'8", 150 pounds. Last season, he had 37 receptions for 667 yards, seven touchdowns, 516 snaps in 2023, 74 in 2022. He's also a return guy. Marshall, Southern Illinois, UMass are all in on him from what I've seen reported. It seems like this is your Jalen Lucas backup. To me, like if they don't land Jalen Lucas from Indiana, who's been linked to Louisville, I think there's even some rumors of him maybe returning to Indiana. I think Keyshawn Brown's the guy they're going to go after. Yeah, I mean, they, they de- I think at the end of the day, going after getting some irons in the fire at skill position, I mean, both skill positions, really, they need, they, they probably need to pull maybe multiple wide receivers and running backs. So having, even if Lucas commits, which it sounds like, you know, I'm not sure if that's going to happen or not. Probably bringing in two or more is a good idea considering um, what they're looking at coming back. So, yeah, agreed. And in one of those spots that they need for sure, losing Josiah Johnson, losing Ian Edenfield is the tight end spot, uh, losing Brayden Cassie, who's listed as a fullback, but, you know, plays that tight end role as well. Tyler Foster from Ohio. We talked about him. Pokes report is saying that he is going to visit. I believe he's eligible to visit starting January 3rd since he is a four-year transfer that is going to enroll for the spring. There's the dead period, which lasts until, I believe, January 18th, but there's a caveat, which I mentioned on the last pod, for these transfer guys that they can start a little bit earlier. So Pokes Report is reporting he's going to visit. It's I'm assuming that won't happen until January 3rd-ish. Before we move to the new guys on defense that they're apparently reported interest offers to, you mentioned running back, you mentioned receiver, I just mentioned tight end. Do you you see them going after any more offensive linemen, or do you think with the Isaiah Glass pickup, they're good there with all the guys returning? Yeah, I mean, I think at the end of the day, if you could get more offensive linemen, you should always take them. But the question is, is should they actively seek them? Um you know, I think a lot of the times some of these transfers kind of fall in, into your lap. Like I think, sp- like for example, in Alan Bowman, like uh, I'm hearing the, kind of his recruitment story about how the connections were made 
Um, so if that happens, I think they would definitely consider taking more. But at the end of the day, I think that's there are positions that are a bigger need than uh, than offensive line, which is insane to talk about. Like I feel like we've been talking about <laughs> offensive line depth since I was five years old. Um, yeah. But I, I think honestly, defensive line I would say is something that they may need. Defensive line, running back, wide receiver, tight end. Um, I kind of feel like they're okay at defensive back. Um, maybe linebacker too, because if you think about it, I don't know how many linebackers they have coming in from this uh, this current class, but they didn't have a ton of depth. We talked about this earlier in the year about having only really like five ready linebackers, and then you're losing one of them in Xavier Benson. Um which Roberson hopefully can between Roberson and um, Donnie Stevens and Donnie Stevens can, can potentially step in and hopefully Justin Wright gets another year back, um, which is he one of the guys that could get a year back? Yeah. No? it He seems to think his is going to get approved like for sure. So like, I think they may be better off, but they still need to build that depth. So I think linebacker could be, but at defensive back, I think they, which it seems like they're going after more, Yes. They got the UTEP kid. So, um, and they actually just were linked to Jarvarius Sims from Central Michigan, pl- primarily played cornerback, six foot, 190. A lot of smaller schools going after him. I'm not sure, unless they think Corey Black is about to hop in the portal. I guess I'm, I agree with you. I'm not sure why they're going after cornerback with so many good guys on the roster. But, you know, maybe maybe they're trying to get more of these cover-type guys that they can move to a safety spot even. Yeah. I mean, I, I still think their strategy is go sign good DBs and then, f- f- you know, figure out where to play later. them. Yeah, which I, which I really love. It's one of my favorite things that they do. Um, so maybe they're just like, let's go. If there's a good player in the portal and they're defensive back, let's grab them. Like, I think maybe yeah. the mentality. No, that so. makes sense. And the last guy I wanted to mention – Defensive end Obi Izigbo. He's from Gannon University, where they got Coach Nardo from. 6'3, 252 pounds. He's currently actually committed to USF, but we saw, you know, with the, what was it, the Western Michigan running back? I can't think of his name off the top of my head that was committed to Oklahoma State last portal. Sean Tyler, I think. Sean Tyler. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. And then he decided to decommit, commit elsewhere. So it can happen. I think they're probably going to get this kid if that news is coming out. He's from Gannon. Coach Nardo coached him for, I believe, one season and then probably had, you know, a full two years at Gannon with him. He's a former wrestler. (laughs) So, obviously, Coach Gundy likes that. I watched some Gannon film when I saw this just because I thought he was probably going to commit and flip. And they stayed in that odd front three down defense and he played that strong side defensive end had some reps obviously on the boundary side as well when teams were going tempo they stood him up at times and even kind of dropped him into coverage like an outside linebacker i know he's going against much lower competition but he's an all-conference first team all-conference player i'm not saying this is your solve at defensive end but i do think it would be a good pickup depth wise with everybody that you're losing i know adam you probably haven't watched a ton on him but I do think this is a guy they could get, and I think it would be a good pickup for depth. Yeah, I mean, I, I think they need help at defensive end. 
Uh, and maybe I'm wrong, but I think having another depth piece would not be a bad a bad thing. And I really like the uh, some of the defensive linemen that they have coming in from the the recruiting class. Um, but that's kind of down the line. Like I think they need for the next one to two seasons. I think they need some help. So. Yeah, I agree. All right. Well, let's hear from one more ad sponsor and then we will wrap up. I'd like to thank Jellyfish or Wild Oak Lighting for sponsoring the Feels Like 45 podcast. Wild Oak Lighting is your authorized Jellyfish Lighting dealer for the Oklahoma City area, Stillwater, and several other Oklahoma markets. Jellyfish Lighting is a permanent but discreet color-changing LED lighting system for the exterior of your home with 16 million different colors and patterns. Jellyfish lighting can be used for Christmas, holiday, and accent lighting. And of course, Oklahoma State game day lighting. You can learn more about jellyfish lighting by checking out the website, wildoak-lighting.com. You can follow them on Facebook or on Instagram at wildoak underscore lighting. You guys know I've been talking about these lights. They're awesome. The guys at Wild Oak Lighting are awesome. You might even see me walking around in my Wild Oak Lighting t-shirt that i recently received from the guys you know maybe if you're really nice to them you can get one of those christmas is over so i've switched them back to my accent lights they look great i get asked about them all the time be sure to check them out the guys over there are awesome and they will hook you up adam thank you so much for joining last minute i know the people are going to love it really appreciate all of your insight and the way you break things down any other parting thoughts before we wrap up this pod No, just that I think that this is, um, you know, a pretty spectacular coaching job all around from the mid-year shifts to the, uh, you know, the handling all the transition. You know, I think um, I think the, the football program is it's funny how different it is. The vibe now than it was this time a year ago where the the, the world was falling apart and everything. And uh, the only thing that I always stress to people is, is like, you know, trust the process, trust the culture. Um, generally good things happen. So that's pretty much it. So. Yeah, love it. All right. Well, you can follow the podcast on Twitter or X at feels like four or five pod. You can follow me at dust ragu. You can follow Adam at Adam Lunt 817. Be sure to check him out. He's always posting cool stats, great video breakdowns, and you know, sometimes just random stuff that makes you laugh or makes you think he's a weirdo. But we love following him. We appreciate him joining. As always, go Pokes.